you know, you have your own SSID for your household and then they would sort of automatically configure a public one. Oh, wait, so, so on your router, like the router that's on in your, your living router. room? Yes, Whoa. yes. Oh, this is why they got into trouble because then essentially the homeowner was paying for the for another <laughs> Comcast of... customer to yes to use their bandwidth. Some stranger so, uh, so that... is standing on the sidewalk outside your house <laughs> using your like it's like it's the war driving. It's war driving Only except they, they <laughs> except except with with a stamp of approval from from the ISD. <laughs> Fun fact. The biggest, reddest button on a Star Trek tricorder was a key that dumped all the device's information wirelessly back to the ship. That was the lone function of the most important button on the device. Just pick your favorite sci-fi franchise. Visualize those handheld scanners or the communicators or computers. As exciting as the fictional tech of the future can be, absolutely none of those props were worth the resin they were cast in without their fictitious counterparts having a constant connection to somewhere else. Well, the same goes for the technology of the present. Every time you ask your smart speaker to play a song, or you share your exercise stats to your fitness friend's group chat, or use your phone to navigate to a new part of town, you are relying on a connection that we used to call going online, back when far fewer people were on the internet. And the thing that keeps most of us connected to that internet is a thing many of us now take for granted. A little something called Wi-Fi. This is Living in the Future, a podcast powered by MediaTek that tells the story of technology that's leapt off the TV screen, transformed from fantastical cinematic science fiction to actual products that change the way we live and work. I'm your host, Michael Fisher, and this is Episode 3, Wi-Fi and the Always-On Internet Connection. Now, I'm old enough to remember when Wi-Fi was still a novelty, so much so that my friends and I would occasionally pop wireless LAN cards into our laptops and go night driving down the roads of the small country town I grew up in, hunting for open wireless access points at farmhouses and supermarkets. From behind the wheel, my friend Ben, a mischievous grin on his face, informed me that this was called war driving. But our ends weren't nefarious. When we found an open Wi-Fi network, we'd use it to log on to AOL Instant Messenger to tell our friends what we were doing. Because it was just that cool to be able to tap into the always-beckoning, already-addictive waters of the then-novel Internet. From a laptop, in a car, no wires needed. And the small-town cops who found us and told us to go home didn't really get it. Wi-Fi would go on to enable things much more critical than bored country teenagers, of course. It now powers an estimated 14 billion devices on the Internet of Things. And my guest is going to tell us all about how we got here. On the way, though, my sponsor would like me to remind you of its role in that tapestry. 
MediaTek is the number one supplier of Wi-Fi chipsets across broadband, retail routers, consumer electronics devices, and gaming. That's pretty cool. And when Wi-Fi isn't enough, well, MediaTek is the 5G leader as well, powering a wide range of 5G applications, from smartphones to hotspots and routers to laptops, vehicles, and more. That means you can count on MediaTek for fast and reliable connectivity, while also enjoying longer battery life thanks to MediaTek's power-efficient solutions. I think that's pretty cool, too. Thanks to MediaTek for sponsoring this podcast. Kelly Hill is the executive editor of RCR Wireless News and a veteran of a decade of tech reporting focused on network infrastructure, big data analytics, and manifold other facets of wireless communication, which makes her the perfect person to help us put the why in Wi-Fi. Kelly, welcome to the future, and I'm very sorry about that lame joke. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to be here. Lame jokes and all. <laughs> um, let's start off with a, kind of a rather weird question that I think a lot of people don't even think about anymore because Wi-Fi has become a, a term of common usage. What's in a name? Why Wi-Fi? I, I, know, I think I know at one point what it stood for, but um, can you tell us what, what that even means? Does it still stand for wireless fidelity? You know, that's a really interesting question because... I think ultimately Wi-Fi was really looking for a name that went beyond sort of the the numbers and letters. And so, you know, mm. when 802.11 was first developed, and this was way, way, way back in the day, you know, 802.11 is not exactly a flashy, like, let's sell this <laughs> thing to consumers. And, and 802.11 is, is a good thing. Um, you know, and so when, when 802.11 really started becoming a potential consumer product and and folks really wanted that type of connectivity you know they essentially went looking for a brand and so you know yes i think there's sort of that that sort of idea of wireless fidelity or even i've also heard wireless fiber um you know (laughs) but ultimately i hadn't heard that you know it, it it wasn't really very fiber-like at the very beginning either it was you know 11 it was just megabits single digit megabits um much per slower, second. Yeah. So, so even even calling it wireless fiber was probably a stretch at the time, you know. But it was <laughs> it was really more about you know not necessarily being an acronym, but something that was easy for people to remember that sort of had a bit of a techie sound to it, um, you know, sort of like sure. adding I to everything, um, you know, gives it a right. gives it a certain cachet, and you know, and ultimately they they developed that name um, in conjunction with a branding company. And so, you know, that was where Wi-Fi comes from, as opposed to being that telecom has a ton of acronyms, uh, but this actually Absolutely. isn't necessarily one of them. So, so it was really more about having a, a word alternative to, oh, it's 802.11b or it's 802.11a. It's, it's, you know, it's Wi-Fi 1, it's Wi-Fi 2. I was fascinated to learn um, in the research for this episode that not only was it, everything you say is correct, and I did not know about the fiber thing, but that it was also kind of maybe they were capitalizing on the um, on the hi-fi familiarity that people had with that kind of thing as well, audio fans, right? And I forgot there was even a brand, like a visual brand, um, that represents Wi-Fi. You know that black and white kind of icon that that is still used yes 
Yeah, no, it's I true. I did not know. Like, I, I didn't know that there was a little hidden yin-yang in there. Did you know that? You know, I don't think I've ever seen it that way. But now that you mention it, I, I, I can totally picture this in my head. And, and <laughs> yeah, there, there really is. Yeah, it apparently indicates the certification of a product for interoperability, according to CableFree.net. So I don't know. I just, I get immense satisfaction out of how we brand things that later become indispensable parts of our everyday life. So... Um, but you, you mentioned this was back in the day. So we're talking, you know, at the beginning, in the late 90s, when Wi-Fi starts to creep its way into the public, you know, consciousness, um, even then surfing the web took a lot of bandwidth. You know, right around 2000 or 2001 is when I was getting my first cable modem at home. Uh, just because the dial-up was no longer fast enough to to accommodate our, you know, my family's web surfing needs. So, in brief, if it's even possible, how did we manage to squeeze so much data into that finite real estate of a wireless technology? Because as we've talked about in previous episodes, it, the wireless spectrum is limited. It's like a highway you can only fit so many cars onto. So... I mean, was there a was there like a magic moment where that that came to pass or broadly, how did we do it? Well, you know, I think the benefit of hindsight here is that it's easy to think about how ubiquitous Wi-Fi is today. And it's easy to forget that back in those early days, there weren't a lot of devices. There just weren't a lot of folks who could actually connect and use Wi-Fi. And then, you know, you didn't have smartphones at the time um, that were, or at the beginning at least, that were able to connect to Wi-Fi. You know, you were still dealing with the days of walled gardens when you were lucky if you could get onto the internet at all, much less, um, you know, get full access to, you know, the uh, entire, the entirety of the web. We were just talking a little bit off air about how slow Wi-Fi was at the beginning, too, relative to, to, the, to the cable connection and, and things of that sort. And we had to essentially decide on a, on a bandwidth or a, an area of the wireless spectrum that was able to carry as much data as we needed. You know, do you, do you have any idea of how we settled on, you know, 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz, these, these two bands that we know very well now as kind of where Wi-Fi lives? Yeah. So, you know, that's a good question. And a lot of it is, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I'm not aware of who the original incumbents were in the 2.4. So 2.4 gigahertz is where Wi-Fi started. Um, you know, that's an ISM band. The industrial and scientific uh, wireless operations have been allowed in that band for a long time. So, you know, we used to, there were a lot of, you know, sort of cordless phones that could operate there. Uh, you yeah, know, uh, I was going to say that. Microwave microwave interfere uh, microwave ovens were um hmm. you know also sort of spewing stuff into not necessarily always intentionally <laughs> but sort of you know wide hand interference there um you know the um a lot of just it's become kind of and i know some people sort of refer to it as a junk band over time you know if you have wireless unlicensed operations then sort of the 2.4 gigahertz band has sort of been the first place where you look to operate and, you know, ultimately... It strikes me that you're describing like a, like a dumping ground almost. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, wireless microphones, I mean, just tons of things that, that actually have, you know, even in the days of sort of analog, you know, have operated wirelessly for a very long time. And they may not have been, uh -huh. you know, a ton of bandwidth. 
but there were probably, you know, quite a few of them. And, you know, over time that just sort of was also where Wi-Fi started as well. The problem was that Wi-Fi really, really took off in a way that many of these other things did not. And it required a lot more bandwidth than something like a baby monitor or a wireless microphone. And, uh, and so you had people setting up networks, uh, that, uh, where they really wanted to be able to, you know, have always available connectivity. And so sure. that band really got congested. Uh, and so ultimately what happened is that, you know, because of the popularity of the Wi-Fi technology, you had the FCC going, you know, we need to open up more spectrum for this. And I believe it was in about 2013 or so that they really started looking at five gigahertz and, and opening up that band because it, you know, 2.4 was getting to the point where you just couldn't get a, a very good quality experience a lot of the times, especially if you were in a major airport, transportation hub, you know, city where a lot of folks right. were all competing to have their Wi-Fi devices on that same spectrum. And so five gigahertz, yeah. um, you know, still today, uh, you know, uses a lot of, uh, provides a lot more spectrum than 2.4 does. And so, uh, you know, that has definitely eased the crunch there. But, you know, the FCC just opened up another huge swath of spectrum at six gigahertz because even even with the the additional spectrum at five, you know, Wi-Fi is just such a pervasive and popular technology that uh, that it needed more, yeah. Yeah, it seems like every day we're getting a new a piece of IoT technology, like a new connected light bulb or a you know connected, I don't know, smart diaper or, or just <laughs> all kinds of accessories that flood in the market, and they they all use Wi-Fi. I want to get to the future of Wi-Fi in a little bit, but before we get too far away from the the past of it, um, verify a memory for me. It seems to me that like, again, I, I got cable internet in my home in like 2000, 2001. I thought that was cool. But right around the same time, showing up in my friend's living rooms and dens or, you know, computer room, uh, I would start seeing these wireless routers, maybe, maybe 2002. But, you know, it seemed to me that I learned about a thing called Wi-Fi very quickly. And almost immediately thereafter, people in my middle class fringes of, of my uh, acquaintances were able to buy them. Like, it seems to me that pricing prices came down on the, uh, on the components for this so quickly. Do you have any sense of how or, or why that happened? Is it just, is it just that easy to make a, you know, a Wi-Fi radio in the early, early aughts? You know, I think that was sort of the tipping point because you're right that your, your, your memories are right. That those early aughts were really where Wi-Fi took off. Um, I did a little hmm. bit of, of checking here and, and I met, found a few mentions of something like 18 million Wi-Fi chipsets shipping in 2002. So, you know, you, <laughs> wow. I mean, that was, so, and, you know, millions of devices, millions and millions of devices coming online in those early odd years. And so mm-hmm. when you get to that level of scale, you know, yeah, you, you sort of already hit that point where, you know, the components and the pricing are, are at a point where the demand is such that, you know, you can make money if you, you know, if you scale up your, your production. And so, yeah. you know, so that is about the time that we really started to hit scale in terms of, you know, the money that the industry was willing to put into it, because clearly this technology was in high demand, you know, and I think it's important to remember that also there was a precursor where, 
you know, you really had sort of the enterprise rollouts, you had the transportation hubs and you had the businesses saying, oh, you know, this technology seems really useful to us and to our customers, uh, the folks who are going to be visiting us, this is a, a perk that people really want. And so, you know, I think you, you sort of see that build in the enterprise space, which is which is often kind of the way that things go with Wi-Fi. And then, sure, you know, and then yeah. it flows into the consumer space and it, then you get that additional scale because the costs, uh, you know, are, are more reasonable. So I, um, I think we, we talked a little bit also about, um, symptom is not the right word, a, a fun byproduct of this time when Wi-Fi was just seemed to become ubiquitous overnight was that enthusiasts or geeks such as myself were being introduced to this concept that I think was called war driving. I think that was, it was a takeoff on war dialing. And I think both of those owe their etymology of that term to the to the excellent film war games um but bottom line i used to be my friends and i back from college in my small town it at this period would drive around with our laptops laptops that by the way didn't have integrated wi-fi we had to put in like a pcmcia card that had a wireless modem in it uh and we used to drive around our town and look for open access points like just drive around until the Wi-Fi menu showed somebody's distant farmhouse or the, maybe the local convenience store had a network that we could connect to. Mm-hmm. And then we could just park outside <laughs> and uh, see if we could connect to it and then do nothing more nefarious than, you know, like check our email just because we could, just because it was fun and novel <laughs> to at 10 at night, check our email without a, a wired connection. Did you ever do anything like that? Because I, I, that's one of my weirdest treasured memories and I don't really know why. So I was not quite at the point where I had the uh, a laptop set up in order to run on Wi-Fi. You know, I was still plugging in for the most part, you know, but I mean, I'll do Got that it. now, you know, depending on where I am, you know, open up the SSID menu, scroll down, scroll down, scroll down, see see who doesn't have a password on their networks. I, 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 I swear, though, that I remember media reports, you know, in that era being like, oh, there might be people who sit outside your house and steal your Wi-Fi signal. So Absolutely. <laughs> and that, you know, and part of it, that was encouraging people a password that's, you know, and hopefully something better than one, two, three, four, you know, on, on your home <laughs> yep. network. And uh, there's still a lot of people, even these days, who don't necessarily do that. Maybe I have those media reports to blame <laughs> just as much as I do, um, you know, bored small town cops for the fact that uh, on one of those three war driving expeditions, we definitely were like pulled over by a cop. We were already stopped, of course, but a cop came up and was like, what are you doing? And I assume this uh, farmhouse that we were stealing internet from 500 feet away had called the called the police on us. We we're like, no, we're just we're just going on online. Do you know what that is, officer? Never mind. It's fine. <laughs> Definitely. Good to have a password on your Wi-Fi. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to circle back. We were talking about uh, we we're talking about bands before um, mm-hmm. 2.4, 5 gigahertz. These days we have these dual band routers. Uh, they, they, I have one. I am one of these uh, noobs who just got a router from my internet service provider, and you know, I'm like, yeah, this is fine. I took it home. I set up my new apartment, which I just moved into a few months ago. I got every single light on a smart switch on a smart outlet. I was all very happy with it, and then we got like one power surge, and um, everything disconnected. And when the power came back on. 
I lost connection to half the things. And I'm like, wait, wait, this isn't supposed to happen. What's going on? I had to manually like factory reset all these smart outlets. Mm -hmm. And then I, I also got this new accessory called a love box. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't prep you for this. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's um, it's a uh, it's a little one way messenger essentially for people in long distance relationships, as I am. And you kind of send text messages back and forth, but it's a box that lives on your desk. It's not a mobile device, and it only operates on two point four gigahertz. And it was hell setting that thing up because I couldn't manually configure my home network to only give me two point four or only give me five. You know, because it was trying to be smarter than I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be dumb again. Is this something you've heard of? Is this something that 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 um, that we might see a solution to other than, well, eventually 2.4 gigahertz devices are just going to be retired? So this is a tough one because, you know, theoretically, you want a device that is smart enough to figure out, oh, there's interference uh, in your 2.4 gigahertz channels. And so I'll bump you to five where you're going to have a better experience. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. if you only, obviously, as you discovered, if you only have a 2.4 gigahertz device, then that means your device no longer operates. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's the industry trying to solve a problem, but then there are other problems sort of unintentionally created for this. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. I think where I tend to see and hear of issues is, um, you know, when you when you don't necessarily have those dual band routers, um, or, or even if you do, if they are configured such that you sort of default to specific channels and say that you know everybody in a particular block or maybe every other house in a particular block all has the same internet service provider, when they send their texts out, they tend to configure them for the same channels. And so then oh, you end really? up interfere. You can get interference from your neighbor because they too get their internet from company Y and, you know, and the, the default configuration is X channel, Y channel. And so. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, Wouldn't you think that would be part of the procedure, like for the, for the text to be like, all right, now if you're installing on these next door apartments, you know, configure the channels differently. Yes. So, well, and that's the kind of, issue that, you know, it can be really common in some circumstances and dual band routers are actually meant to sort of address some of those things that are really, really common like that. And so, Uh, you know, those default configurations, if you, you know, move to something that's more dynamic, then you end up getting less interference issues and, you know, everybody can kind of share some spectrum that is fairly congested a little bit more easily. So the, the auto, the auto switching router is a good thing. The thing that I should direct my ire at is there are these old, older accessories that only operate on one band, and hopefully they see some upgrades in the future. Hopefully we get a Lovebox 2.0 that can operate on both bands. That would be nice because, you know, backwards compatibility is a lot, you know, is, is pretty standard and a lot easier than, uh, than forwards compatibility on devices because you just never know what's <laughs> coming next. Right. Yeah, of course. Um, you've mentioned microwave ovens before, too. So before we get off the spectrum thing, um, I thought this was for for the longest time. I thought this was like a um, an apocryphal tale that using a microwave oven to defrost a chicken for 30 minutes is not a thing you want to do if, say, you're running a, a video call because it will impact your Internet speeds if you're using Wi-Fi. And I 
ran a speed test once uh, living in an old apartment where I used my kitchen island as a standing desk. And I just decided to, to check it out one time. And sure enough, my throughput went through the floor the minute I started running that microwave oven. So is this a thing that, I mean, that was probably 10 years ago. Is this a thing that's still a problem today, assuming that you're connected to a, you know, 2.4 gigahertz hotspot? Or is this something that modern microwave ovens, um, you know, are better shielded against? Do you know? So my, when I have read about this, it has generally been in the context of older microwave ovens, which do last forever. So it's entirely possible. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I, I have not done any testing myself. What I suspect is happening here is that you're getting a wideband interference signal, basically something like that, you know, if, that I would compare to say, if you were trying to run wireless while somebody was welding, um, you get just this huge interference that that interferes across a wide section of the band. So it's not just one channel or two channels. It's, you know, it's basically flooding kind of the area of spectrum. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so it, it's a little unpredictable about exactly where that's going to be and which channels are going to be impacted. So it's probably not a, a great idea if you're really looking to, um, you know, to optimize your 2.4 gigahertz. You know, again, this is the kind of thing that those automatic, um, frequency hoppers essentially will will kind of help because it will uh, bump you up to ideally you know your dual band router is going to say oh there's a whole bunch of stuff at 2.4 so let's bump you up to five so you can stay on your video call and uh, you know and you're not going to have necessarily that same level of degraded experience as you would yeah. if you were still sitting down at 2.4 while your microwave oven is blasting away that is a really great description um I am now going to probably muddy it because I'm famously terrible at analogies. <laughs> this seems to me to be the, a situation where if I am, if I'm trying to talk to you, okay, you're my router, I am my laptop, and we're having a nice conversation, we have a good Wi-Fi connection. Then somebody starts welding, or somebody starts using a microwave oven. Uh, let's call that microwave oven a giant boombox that is suddenly switched on. And it's so loud, you and I can no longer hear each other. Is that a good analogy so far? That is a good analogy. And it's actually a great analogy for Wi-Fi because the mechanism by which Wi-Fi detects interference is sort of a listen before talk. So if your machine or your access point listens and it hears something in the band, essentially, it's not going to start talking because that would be rude and interference-y. And, uh, <laughs> and so, so that's, exactly, that's sort of exactly the, uh, the mechanism. Wow. And so and switching to, you know, the, the to f- to five would be the equivalent of you and me saying that's it's really noisy in here. This sucks. Let's go to another room. Is that? Yeah. Like about. Mm-hmm. OK, got it. That's cool. That's the first analogy I've ever made successfully in my life. So thank <laughs> you for the help. <laughs> um, these, uh, you know, it's it, in my reading, it seems to me that Wi-Fi used to be comparatively simple you know you would have the the access point or the router would be basically broadcasting an omnidirectional signal and if a receiver happened to be in that bubble that you know sphere of rf range uh they could have a conversation and great we got lucky but these days there's there's crazy advanced stuff right there's there's something called beam forming which i guess is is an antenna literally steering a radio signal there's 
something called MIMO, multiple input, multiple output. Can you, you know, there's a lot of this and I don't want to get too in the weeds on it, but just to just to help folks and me understand how intricate and complex a technology this is, um, can you talk about one or both of those just, you know, quickly, like how it, how Wi-Fi has gotten more robust over time? Okay. So there, yeah, absolutely, there is cool stuff happening in Wi-Fi and it has absolutely gotten more advanced. It gets more advanced with every release of the, of, you know, of the next generation of the standard. So beamforming uh, is also something that's used in cellular technology, uh, especially yes. when you get into uh, higher spectrum bands. So the, the, the spectrum does not, the higher you go in the spectrum bands, the shorter the range. So five gigahertz goes about, you know, the propagation is about half as far as, I think that's right, as 2.4. It, it's definitely shorter. And then if you get up to six, that's even a little shorter. And if you go up to something like, you know, 12 gigahertz or 60 gigahertz, which is also an unlicensed frequency that 802.11 can use, um, then you're talking really, really short ranges. You know, tons of bandwidth, but very short range. That, that makes your connection more fragile, right? Yes. So if you're you could turn away from and put your body between yourself and the router, and maybe that would cause enough interference to to disconnect you at these higher frequencies. Absolutely. So and and so if you have your router in the middle of your house and there are walls or maybe concrete block or you know lots of metal pipes that the signal has to sort mm -hmm. of bounce through and around, well, uh, it doesn't go through very well. It sort of has to 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 reflect enough for you to get a good uh, a good connection. You know, um, and so, and everybody pretty much has experienced this where you'll have a really great connection in one room and then you go into the next room and it just all but disappears. Or, you know, if you're on the second floor of your house versus the basement, Absolutely. you know, it, the, the signal quality is very different. And so, yep. um, some of these things are a lot of these things, these features are meant to compensate for some of those things, uh, especially the shortened range as you move higher in the spectrum. And so, um, beamforming is, is basically, it's, it's a way of sort of focusing the energy of the transmission to really target the device so that it's a stronger connection. It's uh, there's, there's more sort of energy going back and forth between the two and therefore your connection is more stable. It's more reliable. And like uh, making the signal a laser beam instead of yeah, a, exactly. I don't know, yeah, like a or a flashlight or, instead or, of you know a lamp okay. that fills a room. You know, you you might be able to you might stand behind something right. and and be in shadow, but uh, but you know with with beam forming, it's really meant to target the device in a way that you know, really strengthens that uh, the the light the signal. It's wild that we can do that with you know without a directional apparatus you know i i picture physical beam forming and i look at it, i picture a, a modem or a router that has like a satellite dish looking <laughs> apparatus on top of it you know it's wild that you can do that and in, in, in a box well that you know i mean like there's, there's antennas the external antennas you know are really really help to enable this so they're there they're just they're not quite satellite dish dishy um but you know that's uh, you know and some <laughs> right. of the more recent releases of uh also include multi-user MIMO. So MIMO is multiple input, multiple output, basically using multiple streams of of signal in order to make sure that, you know, if you, so you have redundancy and additional um, additional bandwidth that is dedicated to to each user 
and uh, and you know reusing the available resources in order to you know maximize both the capacity and again the strength of the uh, you know of the connection. Hmm. Hey, um, you, you were talking about bouncing signals before too, and that's I, I like to figure I, if this podcast goes long enough, I'm going to have a little segment every episode called. Um, multipath appreciation hour because i just <laughs> i love the fact that we developed radios that are capable of you know if if you are blocked if you if there is a wall between you and the antenna but there's a door open on the other side of the room then that radio signal can can bounce around a corner and still be usable for stuff <laughs> i think that's cool as hell <laughs> i think i said that in the first episode i'm going to say it again yes. eh, pretty much every episode multipath is great um <laughs> You, uh, we were talking cellular. Mm-hmm. You kind of touched on cellular a second ago. Um, th- there's this thing that I have never used in my life, and I probably should. Um, in cities and even small towns that I have lived in, I've noticed that at some point, internet service providers started offering like local area Wi-Fi to their subscribers. So yep. y- you're like not in your house, so you pay whoever. Uh, uh, for Wi-Fi at home or for your home internet connection. But when you leave your house, you can, your phone still says, you know, out of whatever, optimum Wi-Fi or Time Warner. And you can connect to Wi-Fi because they've put these boxes up on, like, phone poles. Do, do, first of all, do you use that? Have you, are you a, like a – do you use that or do you so just rely depends. on the cellular I network do. for your phone? So I am a Comcast customer. And they do have a very extensive okay. footprint. And most of the cable companies have been doing this for a number of years now. You know, you can, there are coverage maps essentially on their websites. If, if I'm remote, it's been a while since I checked, but you know, they'll, they'll tell you where the nearest yeah. hotspot is. And for a while, uh, some of them were even doing dual SSIDs on their customer <laughs> on their customer uh, equipment, they they got into a little bit. They got into a little bit of trouble in this in California, oh, really? and I'm not sure that they're doing it anymore. But they would basically, you know, you would have your own SSID for your household, and then they would sort of automatically configure a public one. Oh, wait, so, so on it, your router, like the router that's on in your, your living router. room. Yes. Whoa. Yes. Oh, this is why they got into trouble because then essentially the homeowner was paying for the. For another <laughs> Comcast of- customer to yes to use their bandwidth, some strangers so, uh, so that- is standing on the sidewalk outside your house <laughs> using your like it's like it's the war driving. It's war driving, well, they, except they, they <laughs> except except with with a stamp of approval from from the ISD. Wow, that's absolutely crazy. I'm glad they got into trouble for that. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah. So uh, but but uh, but yeah. So these these footprints of uh, of commercial ISP hotspots do exist. And, uh, and, and yeah, you can log in, you can use them. So where I run into, where, where you run into issues is really authentication. And this is a real barrier for Wi-Fi and it has been for a really long mm. time. You know, there are, because generally when you log onto a Wi-Fi network, now that we all are using security the way that we're supposed to, or that an ISP, you know, wants to make sure only its customers can access it, you have to, you know, put in your, your login and your account password. Um, and so when I'm on my phone that I haven't necessarily used access by Comcast to kind of like, Oh, what is my password? What is, you know, what is my account? What is, which one, which right. variation did yeah. I use for this? Um, 
So that's that's a bit of a barrier. Um, yeah. And once you get it set up and all your cookies and stuff in place, I think it gets a little easier, you know. And there are actually Wi-Fi technologies that are meant to sort of smooth that barrier. Passpoint or Hotspot 2.0, I think, are are, um, are some of the things that have been devised over time to oh. really prevent uh, to try and address that authentication issue because it is an issue and this is one of the things that really keeps wi-fi from looking more like cellular and acting more like cellular is you know that if i'm in a hot spot in north dakota and then you know i take a flight to florida and i'm logging into a, a hotspot from the same company there does it automatically recognize me well mm, sometimes sometimes not Whereas with with cellular, your terminal or your, your phone is, you know, that authentication happens in the background. It's yes. totally trans invisible to the user because all that setup has yes. been done the first time you oh, set up you. the phone, right? The network is like, oh, there's the IMEI. That's exactly. The yeah, it's, it's and you. even if you're in a it foreign country, it always yeah. says, oh, you have Got these it. roaming privileges. And so, yeah, of course, I know it's it's smooth. It's I love seamless. That. It, it works. It's one of those things that, that really, I think, distinguishes cellular as a technology. Um, and Wi-Fi, um, you know, yeah. the industry has really, really tried to address this. I'm not sure for the everyday user that it's necessarily there yet. And it's not necessarily always with the technology. Some of it is sort of the barriers that an individual ISP puts in place in terms of, you know, we only want our users to be sure. able to use this. And, you know, do they have the same setup and configurations everywhere in the country? And, you know, is is every hotspot that you log into and every device that you're on configured in order to make all of this work. So there's a lot of variables that sort of make it complex to actually do. Yeah. Variables, complexity. I'm hearing a lot of stuff that no one wants to deal with in, in 2023 on their devices, right? So that's that leads into my, you know, kind of penultimate question, which is like, at the same time that that complexity does exist on the Wi-Fi side of things, uh, we're being told over and over again that 5G cellular is given is is the the way to like incredible amounts of bandwidth. We're not going to have to worry about capacity issues as much. It's just this <laughs> miracle, wonderful technology. And you know we can have a whole episode on that. But it, yeah, it it is simpler. It does usually work in most areas. So you know, I'm I, part of the reason I don't. I've never used one of these. Um, ISP offered Wi-Fi solutions out in the town is because the cellular network just works and I don't have to worry about it. I don't need to go to Wi-Fi because I'm just using my cellular connection. Is 5G going to eventually kind of kill these uh, town-wide Wi-Fi installations? Or so it's interesting. Stay, do you think? There was a real movement toward municipal Wi-Fi, like actual public, anybody can use it, Wi-Fi for oh, a while yeah. in, oh gosh maybe the mid to late aughts. I'm trying to remember exactly when it was. And that, you yeah. know, it was, oh, we're going to pay for this with advertising. And it turns out that that business model didn't really work out very well. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think you, nope. you sort of still see it in airports. But, you know, again, it's a private network. It's not, you know, the city pays for to put up Wi-Fi and, you know, and it all works. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, so will 5G... Kill, uh, kill public or sort of publicly accessible Wi-Fi. I don't think so. You know, um, I think there, and I and I think there are a few reasons for that. For one, the cellular operators want you on Wi-Fi. 
um, as much as they they also want you using their network and they they want that usage, they want you paying for it. Uh, there is so much traffic that as soon as they can get you onto Wi-Fi, that is their preference. They really want you mm-hmm. to offload to a Wi-Fi network. So if you're somebody like AT and T who also has a whole lot of Wi-Fi hotspots that are public and out there because they're also an ISP. You know, um, they they would really rather that your device, that all that traffic, that that video that you're watching um, take up Mm -hmm. capacity on the unlicensed spectrum that that they're not that they didn't have to pay for. And that and backhaul that that (laughs) they don't necessarily have to pay for because you're on, you know, maybe your home Wi-Fi network. Um, They would much rather have you on that or on any Wi-Fi that you can get onto than to have that you know, HD video you're watching all going over the cellular network along with 20 other people who are also sitting on the bus or the train with you. You chose a great example in AT&T because they, they, they learned that lesson very uh, the, the hard way in the, <laughs> what, 2010, 2012 timeframe when anybody who had an iPhone on AT&T couldn't, couldn't make a phone call in Times <laughs> yes. Square because the network was so overloaded. Yes. Right? Well, you know, that's what happens when you get a killer device and all of a sudden everybody's like, uh-huh. oh, and I you can only get it on AT&T. So then, you know, um, it's, <laughs> yes. So then you run into capacity issues and they, yeah, it was, right. uh, it's, you know, there, there are choke points along the way for this kind of adoption. Yeah. It's, it sounds like, I mean, 5G is not this uh, silver bullet or not 5G. You know, I don't, I don't want to beat up on 5G, but cellular is not this silver bullet solution that, you know, it, Wi-Fi plays a very important role, obviously, inside the home, but also, you know, uh, on, a, on a larger scale as yeah. well. So I think, you know, cellular is always going to be really good at what cellular was designed for, which was, you know, outdoors um, areas where you might be traveling, you know, you might be riding in a car, you might be riding on a you know, on a plane or on, not, a, not on a plane, you're not allowed to use your phone there, but, um, you know, <laughs> on a train or something else where, you know, you, the, the cellular really can do a very good job and the handovers and, and sort of the speed at which you're moving, you know, are, are really well done in cellular and, uh, and, and Wi-Fi is, it's not an ideal situation unless, you know, and we see this a lot nowadays where, you know, there is Wi-Fi on the plane, there is Wi-Fi on the train, and then you eliminate the handover mm-hmm. by just being able to connect to that, wi- that to that single Wi-Fi access point, no matter where you are. And the system takes care of, right. of the, the back-end connection that actually keeps you connected. So Because the access point is moving with you. You're not doing exactly. handoffs every, you know, two miles. Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, so... So, you know, cellular is also really good at, you know, the, the, the latency needed for voice, the quality related to voice, you know, all of that cellular does really, really well. Um, Wi-Fi is excellent at what it does. It's excellent at being a great connectivity vehicle indoors and having enough capacity um, for a lot of devices, you know, whether those are in-home devices or, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a tablet, a couple of phones, um, you know, as long as as long as you're as long as you have access to enough clear channels, which can be tricky if you live, say, in an urban apartment building, you know, and there's sure. a ton of other people who are competing for that same spectrum. Um, and you've been configured you know, but, on the same channels as your neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. So, so hopefully you have a dual band router. Right. Uh, that, that will get that will get you out of that trouble. It puts me in mind of my previous living situation in my old apartment. I lived with a a, a fellow tech reviewer and uh 
we would each come home with new review devices several times a week and, you know, we think nothing <laughs> of attaching them to the home network. And I think we had several nodes. It was a pretty big apartment, so it was a fairly complicated Wi-Fi network, but he set it up, so that was good. Um, but we started having connectivity issues after a year or so, and we eventually, through a lot of tr- just troubleshooting, came to realize that we literally had too many devices on the network. <laughs> like you have 17 phones all trying to back up Google Photos at the same time and, you know, the Xbox and the TV and all that stuff. And that is that's a that's an outlier. But we started adding more stuff even toward the end there. We had a little pet monitor that would wander around. To your point, there were cameras. Um, there, were, there, was, there were new devices showing up all the time, light bulbs, all of which wanted to connect to these home networks. So, yeah, it really is just the same old story. Uh, over and over again through the decades, isn't it? More speed, yes, but also, just as crucially, more capacity. Absolutely. Kelly Hill, this has been awesome. I I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, demystify what's essentially become a utility for so many of us, but is still this really impressive, crazily complex thing that, um, you know, wouldn't work at all if it weren't for some very smart people. And uh, I appreciate you making it very understandable to me and to to everybody listening. So thank you. Great. Thank you, Michael, for having me. Um, would you let people know where they can find you on the internet if that is a thing that you would like to share? Sure. So I write for RCR Wireless News. We are at www.rcrwireless.com. I'm also on Twitter, mostly mostly reading, but uh, occasionally, uh, occasionally jumping in at, at Cahill RCR. Appreciate that. And just a yeah, additional shout out to RCR. I, I do um, a lot of publishing about old phones and things whose details I have long ago forgotten. And RCR is a great resource for finding out more about those things. It's been around for a while. So really nice to chat with somebody who works there. Nice to uh, chat with you. The smart home is something we're going to talk more about on a future installment of this podcast, because I'm not sure there's anything more futuristic than walking into your apartment and telling it verbally that you'd like all the lights on and your favorite music playing and turn on the TV. And by the way, is the fridge still stocked? But whether it's any of that or it's video calling or streaming your favorite songs, whatever you're doing. I'm not sure anything we'll cover in this series is quite as significant and still so underappreciated as the modern-day must-have utility that is Wi-Fi. One more thanks to Kelly Hill for painting such a clear picture for us. Meanwhile, it's time for me to hit that big red emergency button on my own tricorder and beam myself over to the next episode. If you've got thoughts on the present, the future, or even the past of Wi-Fi, especially if you have your own war-driving stories, please tweet them to me. I'm at Captain Two Phones. That's Captain, the number two phones. Until next time, thanks once more to my sponsor, MediaTek, and thanks to you for listening. I've been Michael Fisher, and I'll see you in the future.